1: Hey, y'all. I had a great conversation with Hervoya Morich on his live radio show on TNTradio.live. We talked about the anniversary of 9-11, the future of lockdowns, White Pills, of course, The Cashless Society, and more, believe it or not. The Harvoya Morik Show is a very fast-paced live radio show. He really runs a tight ship. He packs a lot into a one-hour show. So if you miss hearing me, keep up that pace of live radio. Today is your lucky day. And even luckier, you can hear this show and all deep dives, buddy dives, and dive master interviews commercial free on Deep Dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform.
0: Abroad or at home, this is your news. By staying silent, we are part of the
1: problem. Today's News Talk Radio,
0: TNT. TNT. All right, returning to the program is uh, Monica Perez co-host of the Propag- propaganda report uh, podcast and uh, she does the Monica Perez show which you can find uh, on all the socials on Twitter at Monica Perez show uh, as well uh, that's the same for her link tree uh, and you can find uh, on Rockfin the propaganda report and her deep dives welcome back to TNT Monica
1: thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here I love live radio it's so cool
0: yeah thanks for coming back you, it seems you you've had an exciting um summer i i noticed I, I maybe this happened a while ago but i'm just noticing now that you guys have pretty much dropped like um youtube and you're you're kicking it with uh rockfin and that sort of thing
1: yeah i don't do too much youtube because i just kept getting strikes over and over again i was it just seems to be the one thing i did that almost Destroyed it, which it's not like a huge, I was never really focused too much on YouTube, but I used to do a lot of work with a guy who was fighting a lawsuit to get like access to Fulton County ballots in Georgia for the 2020 election. And I made all of my videos with him. I used to get an update every week on his lawsuit. I made all of my videos with him private and they started just cascading, getting strikes. So I had to delete them like in a in a second. Like I saw I had the strikes coming, and I just deleted them all. And I couldn't believe it because I've never seen before where private videos could get you a strike. Like private, nobody could access it. So that was weird. And I kind of stay away from there. And I do Rockfin. I do stuff my. I stopped doing my daily show with my partner, Binkley. I just could not do an everyday show. So we both kind of do parallel stuff. And the video stuff's on Rockfin and all the audio stuff. Uh, I have a new feed, Deep Dives with Monica Perez. But we're still both on the propaganda report. And anyway, just uh, it's kind of more, not less. But yeah, YouTube is is not my friend.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed just like a, a few weeks ago, I, I did an interview with Whitney Webb like in 2021 or something and YouTube, they didn't give me a, a strike or anything. They just like you log in and there's just a notification. Oh, we deleted your interview with Whitney Webb. It was misinformation or whatever from like two years ago. And it's like, okay, fine. Oh, yes. Whatever. <laughs>
1: And that, the problem is when they're going back through your old stuff, you don't know what what's going to cause a strike and you only get like three or four. I should just I mean, I gave up on it anyway, but there I heard that they're starting a thing where if you do if it like says podcast in the title or it's not a video, it's just podcast, they're going to promote that. And I wonder if their censorship will be a little less rigorous for just audio like Spotify. The censorship is minimal. But, and they don't take your entire channel down. They just take like the offending shows down. And that similar thing happens to me on WordPress. They were supposed to just take the picture they didn't like down. They took my entire site down, never gave it back. And uh, so the ones that really just take away everything, that's the scary stuff. But the ones that just take out a show or two. So I don't know if YouTube's going to change if you just put podcasts up there.
0: But I think, anyways, most of us have moved on and we focus more <laughs> on other platforms. I was just reading today, Russell Brand announced he's doing an exclusive uh, daily live uh, stream to Rumble. Uh, And so uh, how do you feel? Do you think like, I I think we've crossed the Rubicon, like even if YouTube said they would stop, you know, censoring, I just, I I, I wouldn't go back, you know, even if my PayPal was reinstated, I would never use it again. Do you you feel like we've just... Yes, I'll I'll never...
1: I'll never use Patreon again, for example. Like, I'm never going to, even just to take that chance. It's not even as a, like, um, a vindictive thing or being insulted. I would just never go back for that reason. With Rumble, I know that, I believe that they pay you a lot more. So, if you had that kind of power, like, I always thought when Alex Jones got kind of kicked off of YouTube, it was like, he probably wanted to get kicked off of YouTube, because I'm sure he makes more money on any other outlet, and he has his own outlets, and that would give him a good excuse, but... The thing with YouTube, though, unless you have a household name, unless they're actually talking about you on the news, it's such a powerful search engine. And I mean, the big thing, and this is why I always liked radio, is that you're like, especially like what you're doing, live radio that has crossover audiences from other shows. You're not always just talking to people who are there looking for you. And YouTube kind of has that quality because it can't, it would never pop me up, but it used to. Like I used to get suggestions of stuff I really wanted to learn. About and I noticed on February fourteenth, twenty eighteen, with the Parkland shooting or event, whatever that was, that uh, I could no longer get any alternative theories at all. That was the day I announced, like the internet died on this day. But it used to be powerful because it would suggest you to like-minded people who were not already in your echo chamber, and and that's a real that's a bummer. That's a big thing to lose, and and now I feel like we're all just. I mean, we are we're a minority, and somebody's got to bust out. And I think some people are busting out. I mean, Russell Brand, Whitney Web, the people you're mentioning, and I feel like that's that'll be good. And maybe they're just trying to stay one step ahead of those guys.
0: But as you say, though, you know, my favorite term for all of this is algorithm uh, ghetto. And I, I feel like I, I use different search engines, and the the results are. Not so much, uh, not as many anymore. They're like whittled down, you know, just a couple pages and they don't even give you results anymore. Even with Google Images, when I'm looking for images for my content, uh, they don't give you a longer list uh, uh, anymore. And YouTube, as you said, you type in any topic, nothing comes up. It's just like MSNBC, CNN, and Fox now. And so it's really weird. I don't know what's uh, going on. But also, you know, Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond, I'll yes. have to get him back. Yeah, I'll have to get him I was back just on, on his tweet. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. He was saying yes. something that he was getting, uh, like, uh, censored by Rumble or, or something, or the monetization. Yes. yes. So, I heard that's that. That's interesting. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah so, I yeah. mean, who, who you, you who started that? I don't know. And, I mean, granted, they're not our platforms, but it feel, you know somebody owns them. But we have to stay ahead of it. And, and there are people who are doing really good work. I mean, I just, I find that they're, they're, these independent outlets are cropping up and a lot of times they get taken over. You know, I mean, when they get, I feel the same way about politicians and other like any kind of activist group at a certain point, if it gets big enough, it will get infiltrated or taken out. Like that's why I'm always kind of on the fence. Like, do you want to grow? Do you really want to have a huge audience? Because I, I, you know, when I just feel like as soon as you actually are a threat, they can very easily cancel you, like subtly or in many, many different ways. So I do, I do worry. So I think our only hope is that new ones crop up all the time, and we keep moving quickly.
0: And that's a great point uh, you brought up. I've thought about that. That like uh, a lot of people who have gotten big have sort of lost their edge, and I don't want to lose my uh, edge. And so uh, yeah, it's it's a struggle to to, to remain. You know, to, for people to keep their. Uh, You know, I I always use Alex Jones as the example, like in the 2000s, he was, you know, very edgy talking to all these interesting people. And then for a while, he just kind of went a little bit mainstreamish. He seems to be doing more interviews, which I like, uh, you know, of interesting guests. So we'll we'll see how that uh, goes. He was actually uh, on TNT, uh, I think, uh, last week or or, or two ago to discuss his uh, book. I think we've got a new presenter on on Sunday. Um, Anyways. uh, you know, I was gonna ask I, you. We're gonna yeah.
1: that I just want to say about the Alex Jones thing is that I would because it was 9-11, I was a look at revisiting this Cass Sunstein document about cognitive infiltration and how to battle conspiracy theories. And one of their main strategies was to find people who have credibility in the conspiracy community and nudge them, prod them, kind of twist their arms into either putting Different facts into the stream, or uh, discrediting certain elements of the theory. So I wonder if they got him. Like, I feel like there's so many people that they just they set them up so they can knock them down. I mean, I don't know, but I, I agree with you. he used to be great.
0: But because w- this is interesting because I feel this happens to uh, me and probably everyone you know involved in this stuff where I will get just floods of from like listeners or subscribers on my, let's say telegram feed or different channels. And they'll flood me with, you know. Lately, it's the whole no virus thing, and I've oh, got a pretty yes. thick. I've I've got a pretty thick skin where I really don't care what anyone says. You know, I just I'm doing my thing. It's like you know, it's raining and it's pouring, and it's just like I'm just gonna do my thing. You you're not gonna get to me. But you know, for for a millisecond, it's almost like it's so much that that some people would be steered, you know, in that direction. And I feel like. That's one method of uh, of doing it. Is you know they'll flood you with through your you know listeners or through different ways. That's how. The, how do you think they, um, you know, would do that to someone like Alex Jones? Do you think they do it to him unwittingly? Like he, he's he's just well. Uh,
1: there are two things that this. So what you're talking about is they want to exploit. This is literally in that document. Pluralistic uh, ignorance, where you don't know what other people are thinking. So depending on how the government sends their message and who they act like they are. So they talk about we can actually be the government or we can be anonymous or we can act like we're somebody else. Um, We can attack the supply side and try to convince conspiracy theorists that they're not true, or we can go to the demand side and try to get to the masses. So it seems to me like that's something that's being pushed out to the masses. And um, so with him, how but but he was a different kind of thing where they would say, I think what they would do with him. And um, I think of this with like King Charles the Third. now that I don't know if you've ever heard about this, you probably have because you have an international bench, so, like the letter that he wrote to Jimmy Savile saying like, Hey, that was the greatest birthday party ever. Like, thanks for bringing your friends or something crazy like that. And Jimmy Savile was the one who had that uh, terrible scandal after he died of like being prominent in, like uh, children's hospitals and stuff, and then having uh, inappropriate relationships with them, or I don't, I don't remember the details of that. But like, it's very important for them to have something over on you. And I read, I was reading about the Franklin scandal, which was back in you know a few decades ago in this in the U.S. where they would have it was like a boys' club thing, and they had like ch- kids who were sexual abuse victims there were supposedly some murders whatever and one of the things that they said in that is like as soon as you're a freshman congressman they invite you to a party they slip you a roofie or whatever so you don't remember you don't know what you're doing put you in you know bed with a boy or a kid take pictures of it and then they have you i mean this is not news So, I mean, they can I think they also pick vulnerable people like Alex Jones does seem like his wheels are shooting off sometimes. I mean, you know, drinking out of a whole bottle of tequila and like letting pictures like that get out. It's just it seems like he's a guy who could be vulnerable and. And, you know, maybe he started out that way because I have always felt like this is not who I want, representing the truth of things like gun control. Like he's just doesn't make a good argument. He he kind of sounds a little crazy and he says stuff that I think are is true, but he sounds a little crazy. So that makes everybody else seem crazy. So from the beginning, there was a little bit of problem but the very beginning when he was establishing credibility. With interviews like Ben Livingston, who did um, Operation Phoenix, where they they mm-hmm. used rain as a force multiplier in Vietnam. And then Charlotte Ezerbite, who revealed the names of the people who were in Skull and Bones. And when he snuck up on the um, wasn't the Bilderberg, it was Bohemian Grove like that stuff was really, I mean, great stuff. So maybe he was just establishing credibility or maybe he just they he was easy to get to in the end, but I just, I feel like, I mean, he seems authentically wheels off right now. Uh, but I just, I don't know what path that was, but I do, I do think that he's not the best representation of the, of the conspiracy position.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned Ben Livingstone. Uh, when I was teaching, U uh, S foreign policy, uh, at university and, and Vietnam, uh, I would actually have a slide, uh, referencing, uh, or I, I think I should I would show a clip and you know yeah. tell students that you know the first time cloud seeding was used you know whether in warfare was in the sixties you know uh, I, uh, to I guess to bring the monsoon season uh, earlier and use it's like storm from X Men right use uh, uh, against the Viet Cong uh, the weather so that's fa- fascinating and I guess we'll have to I haven't had time to listen to to Whitney Webb's recent interviews where she talks about I think one nation under blackmail is. Uh, her book where she talks about this stuff oh, that you've been talk- perfect, talking about yeah we're, we're, yeah we're gonna have to i jump didn't to even know first... about that yeah she's got the i think the two volumes now so so much stuff i, I did just want to bring up nine eleven and not do a deep dive on it because i think most people yeah. are familiar um, right. you know with the different theories but just you know could, because we just uh had the uh, you know the inner anniversary and ju- just to get you know thoughts like the the after your you know, any thoughts you have in this sort of aftermath of 9-11? My view is sort of that at this point, we've got a new 9-11 to contend with, you know, 9-11 part due, uh, COVID 9-11. Uh, as me- some people uh, have um, said that it's like 9-11 part two, where it's it's the same people who did 9-11 w- were behind or involved with COVID uh, 9-11. And I'm, I'm not really so interested in 9-11 uh, anymore. I just kind of got gotten tired of it. It's We've been talking about it for 20 years, and it seems like nobody... Cares and um, it's like JFK. You know, it's been I don't know how many years. Nothing has been done, and the younger this young generation doesn't even know what nine eleven is. And you know, before anyone tells me like I'm I'm being a sore loser. You know, I, I've actually thought uh, in my teaching career at secondary uh, school and undergrad uh, with undergraduate uh, students, I've I, I've had over two thousand students, and I'm sure there was at least one lesson where I always brought up nine eleven. It's just like. Nobody cares. And very few people, you know, change their minds. And I'm just like, oh well, let's let's move on. We're dealing with COVID nine eleven. And soon there's gonna be something else. And so sort of what what's sort of your, you know, reflection on nine eleven?
1: Well, I it's funny that you should of course say JFK because I feel like those were the two turning points where you had a serious ratcheting down of press freedom of our access to real information. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's always the aftermath. It's always the cultural change that they're looking for, the social change that they're looking for that these events allow. So, the event themselves, they don't even want you to look back at the event, of course. But so, with that, I feel like you can, there was more open press before 9 11 for sure. And then, when I was b- going back and reading this Cass Sunstein article about conspiracy theories and how to combat them in the world, the marketplace of ideas, whatever, that was from 2008. And he talks about how with that cognitive infiltration, it's much safer and easier. And I've seen other government documents like this to do it all digitally. So it was going to be hard to combat the conspiracy theories of 9-11 on a one-off basis, going to meetings and stuff. And I feel like the number one thing that this, like I consider it more like World War Three than... Than like another 9-11, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like uh, the the biggest change that has been ushered in here and the thing that they learned from 9-11 is that they would put everything in the digiverse. Like they would put everything, like our our public square is now always in the digital space because they said we were all allergic to each other. And so now it's much, much easier for them to have a, uh, for them to, penetrate that to to correct that cognitive dissonance. And then Cass Sunstein, who wrote that, he, during the last two years, was in a newly formed thing at the World Health Organization called like um, behavioral lessons. I think I wrote it down somewhere. It was like behavioral lessons from the COVID pandemic, something like that. And they're going through and seeing how uh, people, how they were able to what worked and did not work in shaping people's behavior, including like vaccine receptiveness. And they broke it down into however many um, like facets of uh, it was, I think they determined that what the leaders said and the availability, um, the social environment, what their friends were saying and their people's assessment of the risk of the disease, versus the risk of the vaccine plus their values and emotional responses. So they because they digitized all of this, they were able to actually monitor, collect data everything and I feel like that was stuff that, those were lessons that came out of 9/11. So it's all and and like this in itself was something that has a purpose and that was to usher in this. The same thing with like the gas crisis in Europe. Like I feel like There are a lot of geopolitical reasons for this, but I would actually suggest that maybe the number one reason is to get people to have smart meters. And like the food crisis, maybe the number one reason could be to get all these little farmers to have, you know, an app on their phones to convey, to to just collect data. Like every time I dig into one of these stories, it always comes to where they're just, you know, they'll have huge events. And the number one outcome is Plugging everything in, getting the data, of course, surveillance and censorship. But I think that's the mo- the biggest impact of 9-11, I feel like.
0: Yeah, and I agree. You, you said it's uh, like a World War three. I think that's what we're in. So I was hanging out over the weekend with a friend from Sweden, and they're telling me, like everyone knows, it's the closest society to cashless. And I asked the guy, like, so you you don't have any cash? He's like, no. Like, in your, in your wallet, like, no, no. In your apartment, like, no cash at all. Absolutely. Doesn't use cash. And I'm thinking, I read a story from China where now on the public transport, you have to download an app. And that's the only way you can pay. So, like, I, I, I half the time, I don't take my smartphone. I don't like having it on me. So, it's like, it obligates you to have your smartphone on you so that they can locate yes. you. They, can, they know what you buy. They know who you are, are associating with because you're always uh, under geolocation. And then uh, there's that. And... Then Richard, there was a clip of Richard Werner recently where he met, uh, he was with some central banker who told him that he had seen the plans that they have for us, for which includes the central bank digital currencies, the cashless system, and that they actually have plans uh, for an implant. Um, and so it's it's cr- it's crazy. And I was mentioning during the break that I, I talked to um, this crypto expert, Mark Yeftovic, who his theory he had last week was that they're going to co-opt a crypto because they're not going to make one of their own. And over the weekend, Norway Central Bank announced they're going to use Ethereum as its foundation for their Norway's uh, Central Bank digital currency. So it's just we're starting to see things really play out. And I, I, I've been reading a few articles and I think you, you nailed it when you said smart meters. That's one of the keys. Uh, and so, yeah, further thoughts uh, sort of on this whole great reset digi- digitalization.
1: Yeah. And the thing about Sweden, I have a really good friend who's Swedish, and I think I met her about 10 years ago. And at that time, her father would never use anything but cash. So some places were like that. And Sweden was way not as like, well, they were already on the edge anyway. So they went to a place that did not have any predisposition towards credit cards And they eliminated cash and they had to deal with it. And I remember I sent her like birthday money or something. And she's like, I can't, I can't, she couldn't even cash a check. (laughs) That's how crazy it was. So, or an outside thing, it was really, got really complicated really fast. So they can move quickly. And I know in some of those places, they're more prone to being told what to do. I don't know. But that thing about, I always wondered that with Bitcoin and Ethereum, I, I never had any sense of how to value it. You know, I just could never be a crypto person because I just couldn't value it. I couldn't value, I could, you could, I guess, value the demand of like worldwide currency, a hundred trillion dollars or something, but you could never really value the supply because how it, where it come from? But I figured that they had just ushered that in. I know people made a lot of money on it and that's great and it can be anonymous, but I, felt, I always felt like they ushered it in to as a stepping stone towards a cashless society. And I and I wondered when Bitcoin started going crazy, if they were just, you know, the, the way they do with stocks, like make it all crash so they can buy it up, like if that was something that they were they were looking at because they would have to use that platform. So it doesn't surprise me that they're going for it. I thought they would go for Bitcoin and not Ethereum, but is there enough Bitcoin? You know, it's like the bit of a bit of a bit. So I'm not sure about that, but uh, yeah, it seems like that. And, and it seems to me that the ultimate reason for all of it, like between the smart meters and um, the having to have an electronic form of money is the same thing as what they did like in Washington state. I think recently they shut people's power down. Like if you had a smart meter, they did use it. They did control it, take control away from you. Anyway, that was an article I read. And it, it feels to me like that's the entire point of all this, because think about it, like nothing else matters. If they have every single solitary person in control of their ability to buy their necessities and their ability to heat their homes then uh, they they just don't need anything else. So I've always felt like we can talk about geopolitics. We can talk about that, but as long as that if they they keep moving the ball forward on all of that stuff, then. Eventually, they'll just be able to, you know, (laughs) pull your heart plug like on tune. You know, you just they have total, total control at that point and they can control everybody and mass. Like that's another thing. You can't control individuals. You can't control nations. But if you make it modular so everybody has the same systems, boy, you don't need a lot of drone operators. You know, a lot of people sitting in seats doing that stuff because you can just it's a force multiplier like rain.
0: Yeah, regarding the crypto, I think we talked about it last time and that this has always been my theory that it's been um, a globalist uh, Trojan horse. And so far, I feel like um, I see some of the people that used to be bullish on on crypto, Bitcoin and and stuff. They're much quieter now. (laughs) And I, I just feel like my hypothesis is still holding up. And, uh, they also mentioned, I was talking with my friend credit cards. I've been seeing articles saying credit cards will be gone because my friend said, I'm like, what if you don't have cash She's like, you can pay with your smartphone, which I don't want to, or your credit card, but they're gonna get rid of the credit card. So it's just gonna be your phone. And then maybe eventually the implant. And what you said, I I just thought of the term, it's like digital siege warfare. You know, when you attack a castle in the middle ages, you surround them, uh, you know, after a few weeks, you know, a few days or a few weeks or a month, they run out of food and water. And then they're screwed. And that's kind of like what they're doing to us today. As you said, if if uh, they can, they've got uh, their hold on all of the choke points, food, your food, your water, your work, um, your social life, that's like siege uh, warfare. And then you're screwed. And um, yeah, I don't know if you have any further I, thoughts. I just there.
1: I did. I just read an article today that Visa, MasterCard and American Express agreed to process separately or just flag. I thought it said process separately as a separate merchant class places that sell guns. So they're already scaling the the social moral. Value that they're imposing on different products, and I also noticed recently that they're next to all the airfares that I was looking at and some other things that just happen all at once, they have like a different price, like a carbon price. Now, it's not money yet. It's not money yet. It's supposed to just deal with you on a guilt level. Like you're, you know, maybe a cheaper flight, but it's got a higher carbon price. But I feel like very quickly when you have like no control whatsoever, they'll just, that'll just be a tax. I mean, obviously I think that's pretty obvious, but it'll just be a tax like rental cars. You know, there's like a million fees and taxes. They're going to convert that into a tax. And I think that the, you know, the credit card companies and everything, I think they're all across the board in on it. And, uh, and it's about, it's, and I always thought that they, I really literally thought this when Bloomberg, when the mayor of New York tried to, ban sugary sodas, or maybe he did get them to come in smaller sizes or whatever. And I thought, first of all, that's like a coup for aspartame. But the other thing I thought was that they were going to absolutely use it to... Like if you got more do it in a different way. If they could control the currency like that on your phone, if you already had one soda this week, then your tax on that soda is going to be hundred percent. And if you had two sodas, your tax is going to be 300%. So I feel like they are going to just drill down and get the uh, control behavior. And that another thing, because I've been doing all this research on Cass Sunstein is that he wrote the book Nudge and it's about, it was about like health And health, happiness, and wealth, it said, it's about how you get people to make choices you want them to make without having to coerce them or pass laws and maybe without them even knowing it, which obviously we see that now. And he's doing the follow-up studies with the World Health Organization of how his theories worked in practice. But that's going to, I mean, obviously... Taxes. He even mentions in this book if you could tax conspiracy theories, that would be a very effective tool. I think ultimately they they're going to be able to tax everything if they controlled money on that on that level that's attached to your smart data.
0: Yeah, I think uh, you you nailed it. I think they're just going to increase everything, and you just simply won't be able to uh, be able to, to afford it, like gas powered cars. You know, I'm imagining the future. In my home of mexico they bring in the public transport that you know all this propaganda that says i, I saw a story the other day it says take your take your bike you know leave your car at home it's like well it, it's nice to take your bike out when you can but what they're really not telling you is that their, their goal is to you know, get rid of your car. And so you only have your your bike and they're just going to add taxes and taxes. The gas price will be increased. The, you know, the insurance, the everything you got to pay is going to be so expensive, you won't be able to uh, uh, afford it. And even for myself, like flights, you know, uh, airplanes, I think they're just going to probably keep increasing and having less frequency like Amsterdam Airport just announced they're capping their annual number of uh, flights each year. They're probably going to start more airports. Will start, probably start doing this, and then, like for me, for for my family, it's all, we're already on the edge. Like to do uh, international flights, it's uh, soon. It'll be maybe impossible for us to, you know, take uh, international flights between our, our homes of Mexico and Croatia. So we're going to have to choose one, one, uh, one place. And yeah, I think that's unfortunately they're gonna they're gonna price us out of existence.
1: Yeah, I have a few things to. Say I don't know when your next break is, but I'll go as quick as I can. That, the thing about bikes, like that will limit your range. So if you have bikes or something that's plugged into the grid, something that's plugged into the grid, they can turn off, and then you're really limited in range to how far you can go. Also, I'm actually worried if I'll ever be able to get gas. I have an old car, and I love it. It's like a museum kind of thing. It's like a 68 vet in this really pretty blue. <laughs> I just love it, but I'm afraid we'll not even be able to drive it eventually. But also with the airplanes, I remember looking into this when COVID started and it was just the, the toll that it was taking on the airlines. I did see like some insiders say well, we're going to give them tax advantages and stuff so they go along with what we're saying. Like, we will pay them back. We all talk to them in the back room. So I feel like the airline, the guys who run the airlines themselves probably got convinced to do this. But I thought the bigger picture was they're slowing it down. They're making it less pleasant. They're making it um, harder to... Like, they, they must have known what would happen to their staffing when they had these crazy rules and they could have done a better job of getting around that. But they're still having those problems. So I think there was a a time when they switched, flipped a switch where they had wanted us to really, really run around the world and and completely subsidize the cost of travel. Because I've always objected to like airports being paid for by the government. Because what you're doing is you're like subsidizing business travel, really. Like if it's worthwhile to make this trip for a business point of view, you should have to pay more. And for leisure, too, like it's nice for your family to be able to travel around. But if it's really a very costly thing and other taxpayers are subsidizing, it doesn't really make sense. Yet they were very much greasing the skids on that. And then I felt like they just turned it off like this. And when I looked back to those 2010 um, Rockefeller Foundation scenarios of how to get technology to the far reaches of the earth, even if there were any kind of different social or political atmosphere, and they did four different scenarios, at least one of them was about completely shutting down, really shutting down borders and stuff and not having Internet that's like totally fenced in within countries. And I feel like that might be the way they decided to go, that. After like Russia, you know, they provoked Russia and Ukraine, in my opinion. And but still, like, I feel like that was also part of them saying, OK, we're going to divide the world in two because we, the West or whatever, can't we just can't beat them and control the entire world. So we'll divide it into I feel like they're actually, you know, made a decision recently, a real 180 to make things smaller. And cutting back on the airline, air travel is a big part of that.
0: Yeah, I would uh Agree. And Monica, I did want to sort of get your thoughts on where we are with Um, COVID-1984. I've been cynical, like I've been fearing, uh, 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 you know, another lockdown, maybe like come October, November, November, December. But we're just reading now New Zealand, removing all uh, restrictions. Uh, I can't even keep track. I I think I was reading in in Japan now, Hawaii just... um, Remove the vaccine mandate for their biggest private employer, Hawaii uh, Airlines, 7,000 employees. And just, you know, uh, here being here in Europe, it it just feels like people are just so done with it, so over with it, that for them to try it again, I think it would be difficult. They're crazy enough. These people are, you know, complete psychopaths. But I just feel like they're going to have to go find some other thing. How do you feel about, uh, you know, uh, another lockdown or something like that?
1: I, I agree. I've, I never expected. I didn't expect another lockdown after because I live in L.A. and there's when it got to the Omicron variant and I've had like the the, the there is no virus. thing. I totally I interviewed David Crow, who wrote, was the host of The Infectious Myth, and he was writing a book. And I really had a nice relationship with him, really liked him. And I was not convinced that respiratory viruses exist. I had COVID twice and I remember how I got it. And my current theory is that it came from they actually created a contagious vaccine, which they've been working on a long time. So I don't know about viruses in the past during the Spanish flu, but whatever this thing was, somebody like coughed it into my face and I got it. But the first time I got it and I mean, I get like a little bit of hate because I say that, but. I don't, you know, I don't call it whatever you want, but like I got the first time I got it, like there was no, I had no sense of taste or smell and it was not congested. So it was like, whatever they're calling this, that's the thing. And then the second time I got it, I really felt like I had the flu. It really, it was yucky. And it was very similar to what people were getting around me. And I remember how I got that too, but this is in LA and the association between the cases and the hospitalizations and deaths is like published daily. And there's just virtually no hospitalizations and deaths. Now it's like very much a cold or a flu. And that is how they're treating it in um, England. I was just talking to somebody in England and you know, you can attest to the different ways that it's being handled. And I personally think that unless they were going to roll out another like a really virulent strain or, you know, I don't know if they're even really willing to do anything more virulent. It would have to really, it would have to start killing people again. And I, I just think that they're the powers that be need people to actually be dying to get the credibility to do this again. And since I believe personally, but you know, I'm down the rabbit hole, that the whole point of this, whether it's COVID itself and the spike protein that you get in that or the vaccine and the spike protein you get in that, that it's really meant to take out people with underlying conditions, people who are old, and that it's really accomplishing that. Once they got to like the fourth booster, I think we can see That there's a lot of damage going to be done. And then one of, I love to read these documents that they put out. There was one on the Johns Hopkins website, the 2017 SPARS document which absolutely, it was a propaganda script, basically. And it really scripted this exact thing down to um, if if the president prefers one therapeutic, the other party will reject it, like exactly the stuff that happened. And there are a couple of chapters that have not been played out yet under the kind of appendix heading of aftermath. And in that they they have stuff like there will be um, people will start realizing about the vax injuries The politicians will have to decide whether they're going to apologize for it or brush it under the rug. There will be scapegoats. And the thing really read like a scenario analysis that was funded by Big Pharma, which it might have been because it was Johns Hopkins. And one of the things it says is that people were really getting mad and they wanted the liability shield of vaccines lifted and that the that what they wanted to do was then sue the pharmaceutical companies. But fortunately, Congress stepped in and established a fund and they were going to take care of it. And then in the end, they said, well, we've got to wait a couple of more years to see what the real impact is. So they keep kicking the can. So I just feel like they're in that phase of this. And you see like they're they're talking a little bit about like Trump went too fast on the vaccine. There's a congressional investigation like that just cracks me up. Uh, like as if they every single Democrat in Congress didn't want him to go faster. So I, I feel like they're in that later stages, but they're definitely sliding in with all the, what I call like um, political infrastructure where they can go in and now switch over to the, to the, climate stuff. So the gas crisis in Europe, that's why I don't think the Ukraine thing is over. I don't think Ukraine is, I think they're just stimulating another, I I think they want Russia to respond stronger because that gas crisis in Europe, I think has to persist so that they really get people to understand that they need smart meters or whatever. And that that's, since we're used to lockdown, since we're used to shut down, I think now is their time to slide into the climate thing. So I kind of feel like the thing is over, you know, the COVID thing is over, but, and, and I personally feel fatigued by it. And I feel like the powers that be really understand the need to not really break someone. They're like, they're like domestic abusers, like really like Hannibal Lecter type stuff where they know that you need a break or they're going to lose the ones they want to keep like the productive ones, stuff like that. And I, I I can talk about that too, but I, I give you a chance.
0: No, I think you're uh You're right on the money. I think you're nailing it. And um, I was just going to say about the virus stuff, like I I, I could look at the COVID, you know, not uh, that it's not a virus, you know, in in isolated fashion, but I just kind of get freaked out where people are just really pressing too much zealously, almost in a cult like fashion, like that's the only thing they keep telling me about. And they also say they don't believe basically in all of history, there's no such thing as contagion or infectious disease or epidemics. And I'm like, I'm like, well you know, I, I've just experienced, you know, things, there are things, you know, it could be bacteria or something, but um, yeah. Any further thoughts? Well,
1: for me, I, I actually am highly skeptical about this idea of infection and contagion and pandemics in the past epidemics. Like I think that a lot of that stuff, the black plague and everything is um, misrepresented in history. Absolutely. I, I, Bacterial infection is pretty clear. You can see it if you've ever had strep throat. You can see that if you want to call it a, and I think you can put it in agar and watch it grow. Like I, th- you, I don't know what bacteria is supposed to be. You can call it whatever you want, and I don't know what a virus is supposed to be. Like you can't. The bacteria, I think you can see. I think it's like a hundred thousand times the size of a virus. With a virus, so called virus, you have to, you know, worship at the feet of the priests of the electron microscope only they can read the you know the read the high you know language so i have no idea what a virus is or how to talk about it or whatever and i and i absolutely believe all the studies from the spanish flu and everything that it was not contagious and that terrain and like poisons in the air are are much bigger factors in our illness than you know taking a super healthy person and uh, breathing something in their face from a sick person, I think the healthy person is unlikely to get sick. However, I've personally experienced contagion of this stuff. And, that, and I, I literally am so skeptical about contagion that I actually feel like it was the gain of function. that I, I was reading patents from the 80s about that, where they, they've been doing gain of function and viruses for that long. And I really feel like they, they maybe invented contagion, but I experienced it. And I have to be honest about that, even if I get a little hate for it. So I don't, I can't tell the answer, but I feel like the best I can do right now is just to try to be open minded about the experiences I'm having. Because I also feel like you can really fall into a trap of being like slightly too paranoid. And if you are, like in my personal life, I'm talking about, if you are, it really discredits you. Cause like occasionally you'll go too far and you'll be wrong. And then but you're mo- you're just making like a type 2 error <laughs> and and it can be devastating because type 2 errors are like you include stuff that isn't true. Maybe you're kind of better off making a type 1 error which is like don't include anything in your knowledge base that you're not 100% certain of because the credibility blow we can't afford it as people are trying to to get to the truth but yeah so i that they're definitely pushing that and people are still pushing it on me and i'm i'm thinking surely you have some experience in your life that makes you kind of question. I didn't even think COVID was a real thing in the beginning, but I knew people got sick and then I got sick. So I had to had to acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, I I was the same way. Like this summer, a whole bunch of people got sick around me. And I'm like, well, something's going on and people are talking (laughs) about 5G, 5G. And I'm like, well, where I'm here, there's no 5G. So again, it's just like I, I, I don't know everything, but I'm just Anyways, I mean, we're exploring. We got about two minutes left. You know, any any final uh, thoughts?
1: Yeah, I did. I know um, something recent I did that kind of plays out from this where I did a couple of white pill episodes. So I think it's on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. So it was like a white pill. Two things that I did. They're super white pilly. One was I had homesteaders and farmers who I knew listened to my show and I took uh, my son to visit them, and it was such a like refreshing, rejuvenating experience. So I was saying like I'm totally fatigued by what is really effectively World War Three right now, and it's just it's over for me. Like I really need a breather, and I'm not really a catastrophist. Like I really don't. I think I think that the world will be manageable a little bit like not manageable but not unrecognizable like i don't actually think that we're going to have no power no food you know the plagues will return and i think it's it can be a mistake to prep for that that cataclysm without prepping for well what if what if your kids actually have to graduate you know you probably want them to keep their grades up in case the world is still intact So I really like the idea of this balance of like being able to grow some chickens, get dirt under your fingernails. You probably, you know, so many people are on Prozac and stuff. I really think that you don't need that. And I also like my last thing will be, um, so we've been kind of locked down in LA. Most of my family's on the East Coast. And I went to a wedding this, this week last weekend. And I realized like by us just hunkering down and staying intact, keeping our heads and and taking care of each other even in our little lockdown corner when we went back to the family like we brought something to the family and I just feel like it's so important for people to try to take care of their mental health maybe take a news break um, get yourself a chicken you know or a bunny like anything that like gives you some kind of sense of life because I feel like we really need to enter a phase of renewal and rejuvenation right now because we've really been traumatized
0: I totally agree with you and uh Let's keep looking on the bright side. we are out of time. it's always great to chat with you Monica Perez find uh, find the Monica Perez show on the podcast platforms on Twitter at Monica Perez show. Uh, Rockfin as well we're out of time. Thank you Monica. We'll be right back after the break.